This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. When I first looked at the new book by our guest, journalist Shahan Mufti, I was amazed I had no memory of the events he describes, which occurred when I was in my 20s. In March 1977, nearly 150 people were taken hostage in Washington, D.C. by a group of gunmen who stormed three different locations, the headquarters of a prominent Jewish group, the Islamic Center of Washington, and the offices of the District of Columbia City government, where a councilman named Marion Barry took a shotgun pellet in his chest and had to be hospitalized. The assault that led to a two-day standoff was orchestrated by a Hanafi Muslim leader named Hamas Abdul Khalis. Among other things, he was outraged by a movie about the life of the Prophet Muhammad, financed by Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi, that was premiering that day in New York. The attack also grew out of a bitter and violent dispute between Khalis's group and the Nation of Islam, which Khalis had once been a leading member of. Mufti spent seven years researching the events, and he describes them in riveting detail. Shahan Mufti is a veteran journalist who was born in the United States and raised both in the U.S. and Pakistan. He's been a reporter in the U.S. and overseas and is the author of The Faithful Scribe, a book that's both a personal memoir and a history of modern Pakistan. He's currently chair of the Department of Journalism at the University of Richmond. His new book is American Caliph, the true story of a Muslim mystic, a Hollywood epic, and the 1977 siege of Washington, D.C. Well, Shahan Mufti, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be on the show. Before we get started, I just want to offer this note to our listeners. Our conversation today will include a description of harm to children. We won't dwell on it at length or include graphic details, but it is part of the story that unfolds here. So let's talk about the man who is at the heart of this story, Hamas Abdul Khalas. Um, tell us a bit, a bit about him, his early life. Yeah, Hamas Abdul Khalas is the central character of the book. He's the one who led the uh, attack on Washington, D.C. He's an African-American man born in the Midwest in Gary, Indiana in the early 1922. Um, he is a remarkable personality. He has a lot of, you know, his, as, but one of the things that stands out, especially for people who remember him from his childhood, is his musical talent, but also uh, his uh, personality, his quirky personality, and and uh, exhibited some kind of strange antisocial behaviors. Um, the, my reader first meets Hollis, though, as he is at a U.S. Army base. Um, he's a Buffalo soldier, and he's about to be uh, deployed to Europe as in the Second World War. Uh, but my reader will meet him first uh, while he's going through a psychiatric evaluation at the station hospital on the base. And uh, that's where it first emerges that he may be suffering from some, possibly, from some kind of mental illness or disorder. And he's let go fr uh, from the Army and somehow slips through the cracks in the bureaucracy and ends up in Harlem as a jazz musician and a very successful one. Um, and he tours through Europe with his band, uh, but that is also where he first encounters in Harlem uh, Islam and becomes a Muslim. Right. The Nation of Islam, their practices and beliefs were distinct from Sunni Muslims, which were also in the United States, many of them who had emigrated from other countries. So, so remind us of what the nation of Islam's particular beliefs and theology were. 
Yeah, the Nation of Islam is a fascinating organization, and I get into it in some detail in the book. But they have beliefs that are have borrowed from Islam, but are some of them are entirely uh, original, and they believe in uh, the superiority of the black race. And so, the Nation of Islam teaches its followers that uh, the white man uh, was a creation of a scientific experiment, eugenics experiment gone awry, and that the white man is actually the devil, and the black man is divine. And this movement is attracts a lot of people uh, in, in Detroit at first and throughout the Midwest and the Northeast, and the movement starts to grow in mean, black communities across the Northeast and Midwest and even out on the West Coast. And it really is a message that is uh, empowering in some ways. Um, and but is also uh, resentful of uh, the place that African Americans occupy in American society at that time. And uh, what alarms, and the FBI is very early on to this, and what alarms them most is also the militant wing of this organization. But the Nation of Islam, who, whose adherents call themselves black Muslims, uh, become a larger and larger force. They establish a lot of businesses. They open um, mosques uh, in other cities, and they attract the attention of the FBI. And there was also a, a TV documentary series called The Hate That Hate Produced, which elevated their profile. Um, Khalas, the guy at the center of your book, of our story here, moves to Chicago to work directly under Elijah Muhammad. He's part of his inner circle, eventually has a falling out over a personal matter, which you describe. It's pretty colorful, and returns. He goes to New York and then becomes a follower of a different strand of Sunni Islam, the Hanafi strand. So Khalis forms his own group. And it's interesting that this is a guy who'd been to college. He had been a successful jazz musician. But some of the things that he and his followers do then um, – well, less than exactly law-abiding, right? I mean, they <laughs> rob banks. Yeah, uh, they're on a mission. Uh, and Hollis, for you know, he he. What the thing that I found out about him is, even though he's in and out of trouble with the law, he there is a question that lingers over him and his mental illness, or whether he has one, or is he just a master manipulator? These are questions that I kind of hover over the whole story. But one thing he that I do, you know, is undeniable is that when he he set out uh, to do something, he really succeeded. He, like I said, he completed college. He really, you know, shot through the ranks of the Nation of Islam, then jazz, and then with his new mission of bringing Sunni Islam, Hanafi Islam, to America, he uh, has uh, a mission for which he gathers his, uh, which he, you know, he brings people to the cause, most of them young men, African-American men. And uh, they, uh, in the beginning especially, they really don't, they are, they will do anything to get the, their mission started, including trying to rob banks. Um, they get into a really, you know, they try to take over of uh, the black um, black arts repertory theater and school, which was led by Leroy Jones, later known as Amiri Baraka. Um, they get into a with gun guns, fight. right? <laughs> yes, with guns, they move in. They move in with guns and establish a school, get some press coverage. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they're, they're really in a fight to kind of establish supremacy, their supremacy of American Islam, but also kind of this mission of bringing the true Islam to America. Uh, Khalas is uh, 
is uh, not holding back, and they get involved in all kinds of schemes in New York City and then later in Washington, D.C., to make sure that they, they win. And people who know this history will recall that Malcolm X was this charismatic star of the nation of Islam who eventually broke with Elijah Muhammad, condemning corruption and infidelity from Elijah, and then was Malcolm X was assassinated, I believe in 1965. And... Elijah Muhammad then recruits another star, the boxer, Cassius Clay, who becomes Muhammad Ali. And it's interesting that Khalas is gets his own star athlete to join his movement. That's right. Uh, he's, Khalas has his eye, even though Khalas moves to New York, away from Chicago, away from Elijah Muhammad. But it was very, I mean, from the very beginning, he was in competition with Elijah. And... Uh, uh, Muhammad Ali, when he joined, uh, Malcolm X actually brought Muhammad Ali into the Nation of Islam. But the two kind of quickly fell out. And, uh, you know, um, Muhammad Ali almost turned against Malcolm X towards the end of Malcolm's, right before Malcolm's death. But um, Muhammad Ali really propelled the Nation of Islam into kind of a global consciousness, even the way that even Malcolm X could never have done. His star power was just immense. And all over the world, especially in North Africa, the Middle East, and in the Muslim world. Uh, So Muhammad Ali's kind of, as he becomes Elijah Muhammad's poster boy, he really propels the nation of Islam into another realm. Khalas is watching all this. uh, And uh, Khalas in New York is, you know, they have, like we were talking, I mean, they are robbing, trying to rob banks. They are trying to get people turn, you know, join their cause. But Khalas is nowhere near um, achieving what he wants to, which is uh, kind of the level of uh, recognition and popularity that Elijah has. And so, but a very chance kind of encounter with uh, he sees uh, the young UCLA basketball star uh, Louis Alcindor on TV and decides to make a play for him. He knew actually knew his father from the jazz days in Harlem. And uh, he's able to bring Louis Alcindor to his uh, Hanafi group and gives him the name Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And very soon after Kareem joins Khalas, and really throws himself into the Hanafi movement, um, and uh, Kareem becomes one of the you know top drafts in the NBA, signs million dollar contract with the Milwaukee Bucks, and then starts financing the Hanafi operation, a lot of it, and that really is what allows uh, Hollis and the Hanafis to well most importantly, move to Washington, D.C., establish a really nice headquarters on 16th Street and plant themselves in the heart of the American capital, in the heart of American power. And that is really the moment, with Kareem's help, that Khalas is able to finally, fi- he finds himself in a position where he, in his mind, he's finally able to challenge the power of the nation of Islam in, in a real way. So, This person that we've been talking about, Hamas Abdul Khalas, uh, has established his own Muslim movement in the Hanafi tradition. In the early 70s, he he is in a growing feud with the nation of Islam, and he sends a bunch of letters, um, among them one which particularly insulted Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the nation of Islam. And it seems that from then on, um, it was kind of war between these two leaders and these two movements, wasn't it? Yeah, so this moment where 
Collis has established himself um, with the help of Kareem at this headquarters and a really, you know, beautiful building on 16th Street in Northwest Washington, D.C. Um, the, by the way, the FBI and the Washington police are already watching this community as soon as they move to Washington, D.C., and they're watching them pretty closely. But one thing that they don't notice is that Hollis buys a Xerox machine. You know, they don't make much of it, but that's kind of his plan for this is that he's going to start writing letters and uh, printing copies of these letters and sending them around the country to Elijah Muhammad's followers. In these letters, um, Hollis is with his kind of makeshift mass media operation. Hollis... Uh, tells the story of Elijah Muhammad as he understands it, which is that he is a charlatan, he is uh, an agent of Zionists who has been sent to his doing the work of misleading uh, black Americans and making, you know, turning them away from true Islam. And he tells the stories that are, you know, circulating in, in among Sunni Muslims at that time, that, you know, about his past and about, you know, his cr criminal past, but also about how he's, uh, a, you know, basically making a lot of this stuff about the nation of Islam up. Um, a lot of this, uh, so these letters go out to all the temples of the Nation of Islam and to the ministers. And the Nation of Islam by this time is a massive national organization, coast to coast, and has thousands, hundreds, tens of thousands of followers. And a part of this organization, within this organization, there is a really an element of uh, an organized crime unit that's also developed. And people within that organized crime unit take note of these letters. They're coming from a defector who has inside knowledge of the Nation of Islam, and so they receive these as almost as threats, but at the very least as threatening let letters that threaten the existence of the Nation of Islam. Right, and that brings us to a part of the story. I I'm just going to alert our listeners. I'd mentioned earlier that there is a description of harm to children in this story. We're about to get to that, so if you want to step away for a couple of minutes, this might be the time to do it. Um, in January 1973, uh, a, a group of men, essentially a hit squad, arrives at the uh, the Hanafi headquarters there that Khalas had established in Washington, D.C. He was not there. They were clearly there to find him. There were more kids than adults there. What happened? So this hit squad originated from Temple 12 of the Nation of Islam in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, this was a notorious uh, temple in the Nation of Islam, known for its really kind of where the organized crime unit of the Nation of Islam was headquartered in some ways in Philadelphia. They kind of come in cars and on trains and arrive in Washington, D.C. the day before Nixon is uh, in second inauguration. So the D.C. is buzzing, um, but these men are on a mission to eliminate the threat of Hamas Abdul Khalis kind of eliminate the Hanafi organization. Um, they arrive at the headquarters one afternoon, uh, like you said, to uh, assassinate Khalis. But what they find is a house full of Khalis, of mostly kids, uh, and Khalis's close family members, including his wives. He had multiple wives. Um, they enter and cut loose in a, in a fashion that this. Uh, this organization that had developed in uh, uh, 
in Philadelphia was called the Black Mafia, but also the Muslim Mob. And they were notorious in Philadelphia for real violent crime. Um, and uh, in their typical fashion, they unleashed on the children in the house and on the grown-ups as well. Uh, um, and uh, in, they went on, you know, gathered everybody in the house. There was about a dozen people in the house. And uh, they started, after not finding Hollis there, they got frustrated and cut loose and started shooting the children, well, some of the children first, um, Hollis's children. Some of them were. Hollis's eldest son was uh, 25 at that time uh, and really emerging as his heir apparent to the organization as well. He was shot in the head. And the children, there were children between the ages of uh, seven years old and, uh, and nine days old. One of Hollis's babies was, uh, um, from his second wife, was nine days old at that time. And uh, these men decided that they could not leave behind, even leave behind the children as potential witnesses and decided to drown them. Um, and uh, it was it, and it was just you know it was a how it was a, a, a horrific massacre. The next morning's papers called it the worst ma- massacre in the history of the nation's capital. A total of seven killed. I, I tallied this up: two adults, five children, and then two other adults who actually survived with bullet wounds to the head. One of them, uh, a daughter of Hollis, who later testified at the trials of the assailants, if I have all this right. Um, you, know, you know, it seems like most of the violence came from the Nation of Islam. I mean, the Khalas's group didn't seem to, I mean, although they did rob banks, I mean, they didn't engage in violence before this, right? But I'm just kind of wondering why, why all of this turbulence? Why not, I don't know, why do you think this developed as it did? Well, this is happening. I mean, this is happening in the larger context of, uh, you know, the Black Power movement growing, the Black Panthers emerging in the 60s. So Hollis's movement, the Hanafis are in some way straddling uh, a, you know, they are, they have one eye on, on the unrest in America. Uh, you know, this for Hollis, the 19, the hot summer of 1967, and then MLK's assassination in 1968. And, you know, not just for Hollis, but Kareem as well, the two kind of important figures in this movement. They're watching what's happening in America. But interestingly, you know, they're also tying it to being Muslim. They're able to tie it to what they're seeing in the Middle East, for example, the, ni- the 1967 war between Israel uh, and its Arab neighbors. They're looking at the plot of the Palestinians somehow and 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 equating that in some ways to what African Americans are experiencing in this country. So it's a really interesting, you know, place to be looking at as Amer- black American Muslims. They were interpreting a lot of what they were seeing in America and putting it in a global context the way that maybe not everybody was. And, you know, the turbulence that, but, you know, there was enough going on uh, in the United States with some militant uh, African-American civil rights organizations. Well, like I said, the Black Panthers were in the Revolutionary Action Movement, which was allied with Malcolm X. A lot of these groups were carrying out their own militant attacks in America, not just them. I mean, I was amazed during There's the research. There's the weather underground. I mean, there were other groups too. Yeah, right? exactly. There is so much happening in the United States in the 60s and 70s as far as militancy goes. 
Let, let's uh, take a break here, and then we'll get back to our conversation in just a moment. We are speaking with Shahan Mufti. He is chair of the journalism department at the University of Richmond. His new book is American Caliph, The True Story of a Muslim Mystic, a Hollywood Epic, and the 1977 Siege of Washington, D.C. He'll be back to talk more after this short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air, and we're speaking with journalist Shahan Mufti, whose new book describes the largest hostage-taking in American history. It occurred in Washington, D.C. in 1977, when a Muslim leader named Hamas Abdul Khalis led an assault on three locations in the nation's capital. He was angry about the premiere of a movie on the life of the Prophet Muhammad and the murder four years earlier of seven of his family members and followers by supporters of the Nation of Islam, with whom Khalis was engaged in a bitter dispute. Mufti's book about the events is American Caliph, The True Story of a Muslim Mystic, a Hollywood Epic, and the 1977 Siege of Washington, D.C. You know, before we get to the hostage incident, which is at the heart of this story, we have to talk a little bit about the movie. There is a film here, uh, which could be a whole book by itself. But So let's give it a, a brief description here. There was a film director, a Syrian-born gentleman, Mustafa Akkad, um, he has an idea to kind of tell the Western world about Islam by, um, you know, portraying the, the critical events in the life of the Prophet Muhammad. Of course, there is, I think, generally in, in Islam, a prohibition of depicting the Prophet in any way. How did he propose to handle that, and how does he get funding for this? <laughs> right. So as Collis and you know his group are watching the events in nineteen of in the Middle East, the nineteen sixty seven war between Israel and Arab neighbors, uh, Akkad, uh, this uh, man born in Aleppo, Syria, who has come to the United States in the fifties just with one dream of making it in Hollywood, he's also watching these events in the Middle East, and that's kind of what inspires his project. He wants to tell the story of Islam to America, and his medium is film. He wants to be the Arab David Lean. He wants to create a, an epic, an unforgettable epic in which the, he will tell the West the story of Islam and specifically the story of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. The, the hitch here is that you cannot show. Muhammad. That's the widely accepted belief of a majority of the Muslims around the world. There is, and it's a complicated history because Muhammad has been depicted in, in paintings in Islamic history, but it's a widely accepted taboo. Um, the his workaround with is simply to uh, not show Muhammad, but actually use the camera to kind of uh, relay his point of view. So you can view things through Muhammad's eyes in the film. And uh, this is the workaround and the device that he proposes. And he starts shopping around to Hollywood execs and Hollywood studios. It sounds like an absurd idea to tell the story of Muhammad, but never actually meet Muhammad in the film. And he's shot down very quickly. Um, yeah, so that's his proposal. <laughs> but it's fascinating because he eventually gets funding and gets Hollywood stars, right? Anthony Quinn is in it. Um, and he also wisely goes to religious authorities is in Islam and kind of gets the boxes checked, right? People said, yep, this, this is okay. So he gets funding and he sets up a starts shooting on location in Morocco, huge sets, hundreds of extras, specially trained horses for the big scenes. And then in 1974, <laughs> he has to stop. What, what happened? 
Yeah, and and this, I mean, it was a, it took ten years this project, uh, ten years and seventeen million dollars, according to Akkad. Just as a reference, Star Wars came out in 1977 as well, and George Lucas, I think, put the cost of that Star Wars at 11 million. And this was how much? This was 17 million, wow. is what Akkad tallied it up to in the end. Most of it coming from Muammar, well, a lot of it coming from Muammar Gaddafi. Muammar Gaddafi provided not just financing for the film, but a lot of diplomatic cover because he needed it so like you said the film was not shut down once but shooting was shut down several times because there were uh, very powerful figures in in the Middle East who were opposed to this project, especially, particularly in Saudi Arabia. And uh, this council of uh, clerics in Saudi Arabia, the World Muslim World League, they were taking serious offense from this project even going forward. And uh, at one point it, in Morocco, it has to completely shut down. And that's where Muammar Gaddafi steps in. Muammar Gaddafi is a renegade kind of in the, even in, within the Middle East. And and he really takes a liking to this project. He sees a lot of potential for Islamic influence to grow from this movie project. And he takes Akkad in, his in thousands of extras, uh, and provides him cover, diplomatic cover, but also just incredible facilities in Libya, and allows the film to go to completion. So they, they get it done, they premiere it in London, I believe. And then its American premiere is scheduled for... March of 1977, and Hamas Abdul Khalas, the Hanafi leader that we've been talking about, happens upon a poster of this. He's at a low point in his life. Members of his family were murdered. He felt he never got justice, and he is enraged about it. And this this all leads him to this hostage taking. Um, this is a massive operation. Let's just walk through it. There were three different locations, most of them at the uh, Washington headquarters of B'nai B'rith, which is a, a longstanding and very large and influential Jewish organization. What, what happens there? So just to kind of contextualize this, this is March 9th, 1977. Jimmy Carter has been in office all of what, 50 days at this point, and he's about to face his first big hostage crisis of his administration. Uh, he does not know that. He is uh, hosting the Israeli prime minister, Yitzhak Rabin, that morning. Who And it's a really important meeting that a lot of people are paying attention to because Carter has come into office, and it's very obvious that peace in the Middle East is going to be a central, central foreign policy focus of his. While he's doing that, of course, these uh, seven Hakalis uh, and six other men, so seven Hanafis enter the B'nai B'rith organization uh, at around 11 a.m., and they take over the entire building. Within an hour, they're holding over 100 hostages, mostly employees of the organization, mostly Jewish. Um, that is the first hit. Um, Washington police is responding to this, trying to make sense of this, uh, when a couple of miles down Massachusetts Avenue, three other Hanafis hit the Islamic Center of Washington, D.C. And uh, they enter there, take close to a dozen hostages, most of them actually Muslim. 
uh, it's the Islamic Center, but and some of them with actual semi-quasi-diplomatic status. And the, some of the patrol cars have to peel off from the B'nai B'rith and go to the Islamic Center. They're still trying to piece this together when the Hanafis hit the third target, which is um, the district building, uh, which is kind of how it's city council for Washington, D.C. And it's uh, just a few hundred yards from the White House, visible from Carter's bedroom, actually. And uh, the Hanafis over there, the two Hanafis take over um, take over the fifth floor of that building. That is where, that was the most violent site of the, the whole takeover. Um, the third building is where f- there was a fire gunfight between security police and, and the Hanafis. And that is where, um, uh, w- on, within a few minutes of the takeover, there are three bodies lying on the marble floor, uh, bleeding. Um, one of them is a security guard. One of them is a young radio reporter. A uh, 24-year-old young radio reporter, and the third one is Marion Barry, who is a council member of the Washington, D.C. City Council. We need to take a break here. Let me reintroduce you. We are speaking with journalist Shahan Mufti. He is chair of the Department of Journalism at the University of Richmond. His new book is American Caliph, the true story of a Muslim mystic, a Hollywood epic, and the 1977 siege of Washington, D.C. We'll be back after this short break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Athletic Greens. AG1 by Athletic Greens is a daily nutritional beverage that contains 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, prebiotics, probiotics, adaptogens, and more. AG1 is less than $3 a day and is used by many professional athletes and top performers. Go to athleticgreens.com fresh to receive a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. This is Fresh Air, and we're speaking with Shahan Mufti. He is chair of the Department of Journalism at the University of Richmond and a veteran journalist himself. His new book is American Caliph, the true story of a Muslim mystic, a Hollywood epic, and the 1977 siege of Washington, D.C. So this would go on for two days. What were Hollis's demands? Hollis uh, well, the first demand that was right out of the gates was Hollis wanted the film stopped. So the Akkad's film had finally found a location, a premiere for March 9th at the Rivoli Theater in Manhattan. And uh, the, there was a two o'clock premiere uh, showing. And Hollis at around noon relays his first demand, a little afternoon, that he wants that film stopped. She does not want that premiere to go forward. Uh, But not only that, he wants the actual film reels removed from the United States. He wants the film removed from America. And that is his first and only demand for a long time. Um, The film does start, and I tell tell the story of a book. It's very close, but it is stopped mid-showing in Manhattan. But by the time they do that, the other demands, Hollis's other grievances have already come forward. He wants the murderers, uh, the people who had entered the Hanafi Center in 73. Uh, Some of them are in prison. Some of them are not. One of them had been acquitted, uh, and some of them were still awaiting trial. Hollis wanted all of them delivered to him at the B'nai B'rith, where he said he would execute justice, which most people assume to mean that he would behead them or execute them somehow. 
Um, he also wanted $750. And that was a demand that when I started research for the book, I didn't make much sense to me. It seemed irrational. But there, that was actually a very specific amount that he had to pay in court fees uh, during the trial of the murderers uh, at the Hanafi Center. It was kind of a symbolic figure for him that was, in some ways, I suggest, the price of justice uh, or price of injustice in his mind that he had to suffer. Well, this went on for two long days, and I thought we should hear a bit, of, a little bit of Hollis's voice. And so what we have here is some tape where he, he was on the phone through a lot of this, talking with the police negotiators and quite a few reporters. This is an exchange with an African-American TV news anchor named Max Robinson, who had a relationship with Hollis from his coverage earlier of the massacre of the Hollis family at the Hanafi Center. So we'll hear what we'll hear is him talking to Max Robinson about his demands, and you'll hear a reference to the seven hundred dollar, seven hundred and fifty dollar fine uh, as part of the court proceedings. And also, you'll hear at one point Hollis turns away from the phone to give some instructions to his followers who were holding the hostages. So this is during the hostage crisis. The journalist Max Robinson speaks first. You were asking that those responsible for the deaths or who killed your children be brought to the B'nai B'rith building. And the ones that kill Malcolm. And the ones that kill Malcolm. That's right. I want them. And you're asking for the $750? I want them. And the $750. And be sure you make on the radio that I've turned down millions of dollars, so it's not the 750 but this dog-ass Judge Braben, he hold me in contempt of court because I charged the murderers that murder my babies. Now, what do you think about that? And you think I'm going to roll over and play dead? What do you think I am? Some kind of jokester, I take my face serious. Do you think I went through all that as a joke, Max? Do you? I understand what you All right, then. After I'm very the, serious you about have made my those, face. You have made what about the, those sharpshooters, uh, brother? Uh, they may have moved them somewhere else. Keep stacking, boys. Keep stacking, boys. Move it faster. Make them move faster, Latif. Work them. Hamas? Yes. You talked to Police Chief Cullinane a few moments ago. Yes. What were your demands of him? Same thing, Max. I'm through. All right? Been talking all day. Okay? And that was Hamas Abdul Khalas during the hostage-taking in 1977 when he had nearly 150 people um, being held hostage. You know, and in a situation like this, you hope that, that hostages can be released without harm, but a fair amount of harm was inflicted in the taking of, of these folks, wasn't it? Well, the district building, the third location, like I said, was the, was the deadly one. That's where people died. Uh, well, at least one reporter died immediately. But there was violence at the B'nai. There was a lot of violence at B'nai B'rith. Hollis had, uh, you know, his anti-Semitism had, it had always, he kind of had, you know, been introduced to this idea in some ways, as far as I could tell, in the Nation of Islam. But even though he rejected all the teachings of the Nation of Islam and completely turned on that organization, that somehow was a constant in his life. And he really carried a lot of that uh, suspicion of uh, and hatred for Zionism, especially, he said. Uh, and uh, he carried that into his Sunni Muslim life, too. And uh, that is, he was there present in the B'nai B'rith, and that is where, you know, there was, um, there wasn't, nobody uh, died immediately at that location, actually, at, at no point, but um, that is where there was a lot of physical abuse. Hollis himself knocked 
some people out with the, at least one person out with the butt of the gun. It emerged, and uh, people were shot, were bleeding, and yeah, several moments were piled up. And for Jewish hostages, you know, a lot some of these Jewish hostages that actually, uh, you know, escaped the Holocaust in Europe, um, and for them to be, you know, uh, these these. Uh, this trauma was uh, triggering, you know, really old wounds. We are going to take one more break here. We are speaking with Shahan Mufti. He is chair of the Department of Journalism at the University of Richmond. His new book is American Caliph, the true story of a Muslim mystic, a Hollywood epic, and the 1977 siege of Washington, D.C. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Fresh Air. I was going to ask you kind of what you make of him, given that, you know, there are any number of cases in his life where he appears to have psychiatric problems. His wife at one point uh, committed him for treatment, um, you know, many years before. I mean, do you think he was mentally ill? <laughs> That's a question. I think I, in the end, I do leave for the reader to decide. It's interesting. His his encounters with the with psych, psychiatrists and his mental evaluations are always going on at a time when he's in some trouble. Either he's about to get deployed, or he's just been, uh, you know, he's about to get prosecuted for a bank robbery, or something is where his mental illnesses flare up. Having said that. I'm no psychiatrist and I wouldn't, I cannot diagnose anybody, especially who I never met and who's not around anymore. But there, many people, you know, his, his, um, the way he excelled at manipulating people and the way he had these, what I call in the book, kind of possible delusions of grandeur, these are also possible manifestations of whatever his mental condition and mental state was. So it's hard to tell, but he was clearly not um, handicapped always by these uh, ide- by his condition. And in some ways, even the, his ability to manipulate people and his ability to, you know, charm people in some ways could point to some some condition which allowed him to do that, but also which he suffered from. You know, maybe the most amazing moment in this really amazing story is how the hostage crisis came to an end. Remarkably, three ambassadors from the countries of Iran, Pakistan, and Egypt came in to talk to Khalas there at the B'nai building. The police allowed it. Tell us just a little about the conversation and what made the difference, what the breakthrough was. This was a remarkable moment of the story um, and, and something that I think would never happen today where three foreign ambassadors uh, would be allowed to walk into an active hostage situation and negotiate on behalf of the U- United States. Um, these three ambassadors were armed only with a copy of the Quran and had selected um, some verses that they were going to read to Hollis and try to convince him somehow through the force of Allah's word to give up the hostages and let them go. Um, this meeting went on for over three hours and it, and it went in late into the night of the March 10th. And uh, in the first couple of hours, the ambassadors were really relying on their Quranic verses and kind of reason Khalis through with Khalis through those words and and appeal to his ideas of justice and but also precision in following Allah's commands, etc. 
Uh, but really what broke him in the end was not the uh, words from the Quran or any religious text. It was a story that the Iranian ambassador told him about that he had heard from his grandmother about their, his own family and kind of a story. It was a story of, of uh, cyclical violence and revenge. And that root story really cracked Collis in the end. He embraced the Iranian ambassador for several minutes and wept. Um, you said this was the first time you were aware of him crying over the, the deaths of his children? That's right. Um, I, I spoke to many people who were around Khalas after the massacre of his family through to the hostage-taking four years later, and not one remembered Khalas ever shedding a tear, which was remarkable and, and scary for a lot of people. But this story uh, that the Iranian ambassador told him in the lobby of the B'nai B'rith late into the second night, um, it was a story about his own family, like I said, and it was a story about um, how his grandfather had, had been murdered and how his grandmother had decided to forgive the murderers of his grandfather. Somehow that story captured a lot of what Collis was feeling and had been what was in his mind and in his heart leading up to the hostage-taking. It, it collapsed the political and the personal and the religious and the psychological in a way that finally penetrated Hollis's armor. Uh, and he, he broke down, he embraced the ambassador, and he wept for several minutes and just, uh, as everybody in the room, just watched silently wondering what this would lead to. But eventually, Hollis uh, stopped crying, took a seat again, and informed the negotiators at the table that he was ready to let all hostages go. And I think you, I think you write that one of the ambassadors said, "Perhaps you should release thirty hostages as a show of good faith." And he says, "Maybe I should just release them all." You eventually spoke to the Iranian ambassador about this, still alive. Um, what did he recall of it? He actually just died last year, um, and I. Um, uh, but I was lucky enough to visit with him in, in Montreux, Switzerland, where he's lived in exile ever since the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Um, and uh, he uh, had a remarkable, he was in his 90s when I met him, his mid-90s, but he had a remarkable, remarkably sharp memory of all these events. Um, he, like so many others I spoke to, spoke with some real tenderness um, for Hollis, um, which I was surprised by, to be honest, to consider the amount of pain Hollis caused so many people. Um, and, but there were, you know, negotiators, but there were some even hostages, and uh, a lot of people who felt the pain that Hollis had also suffered in his life and, and spoke of it and were in some ways, I think, including the ambassador, I think many of them were still trying to make sense after all these years of what had happened to Hollis. So he agrees to let them go if he can figure out some terms with the police, and they do it. I mean, and part of the arrangement was that he would be released after he surrendered, which is pretty remarkable considering the gravity of these events, he and some others. But eventually they all went to trial, and Hollis spent the rest of his life in prison. You know, this is a largely forgotten episode, and neither you nor I remembered it until we discovered it more recently. Uh, why do you think this is worth remembering and retelling? I started this book and kind of, you know, I found this episode, like I said, in 2015, and then I've been working on this book 
that was the Obama administration. Uh, so I, I started this book at a time when America was a, a different place. Um, and then I've been working on this book ever since. And I've been, you know, I've been with one eye, I've been watching what's been going on in America ever since. And, and you know, I, I worked through on this uh, book through the Trump presidency. And I've worked on this book through the Muslim ban conversation and build the wall and uh, uh, George Floyd's murder and the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, the January 6th attacks on Washington. And before that, people beating down the Supreme Court door of the Supreme Court when Justice Kavanaugh was being sworn in. And, you know, it's been interesting experience watching America. American contemporary American history unfold as I was working on this book. I I can think of a lot of reasons why why this is a really relevant story. You know, even at this moment, there's an ongoing controversy where a university professor at a at a Minnesota university has been fired for showing the images of the Prophet Muhammad in a classroom, and you know, and that was in some ways my gateway into this story was that idea of blasphemy in Islam, but. But, you know, I think it's what uh, has been most, the most powerful thing for me has been kind of seeing the disillusionment that Khalas felt with America. And I'm seeing a lot of people lose faith in America. And this is the story of what one man was driven to do uh, by when he completely lost faith. Well, Jahan Mufti, thanks so much for speaking with us. It was a real pleasure, Dave. Thank you. Shahan Mufti is chair of the Department of Journalism at the University of Richmond. His new book is American Caliph, the true story of a Muslim mystic, a Hollywood epic, and the 1977 siege of Washington, D.C. On tomorrow's show, we take stock of the January 6th committee's work, its public hearings, final report, and the hundreds of witness interview transcripts it has released. We'll speak with The New York Times' Luke Broadwater, who covers Congress. He was in the Capitol the day of the assault and has reported on the committee's work from the beginning. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Quenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. <laughs>